Recognizing the signs of human trafficking is just the first step in knowing how to respond. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, August 3rd, and this is In the Moment. Later this hour, we visit with the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigations Human Trafficking Coordinator, Mary Beth Holsworth. She tells us the role everyday citizens can play in the fight to keep our neighbors safe. But first, a friendly reminder that those yearly exams can make all the difference in maintaining your health. We'll hear from Sanford's Dr. Erica Shipper on the importance of yearly well woman exams and detecting uterine fibroids. Plus, Kevin Wooster has a new blog about fishing and the moments that live on in family lore. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry. In today for Lori Walsh, you're in the moment. News is first. The popularity of board games continues to boom. The screenless form of entertainment helped many people through lockdowns during the pandemic. And now the games are opening doors for new businesses and competitions. SDPB's Madeline Grabo has more. In a recent report, the Washington Post says, the global board game market is projected to grow by about 10% in the next five years. In fact, the board game industry has thrived so much, there was a first ever event last year in Las Vegas. Welcome to the World Series of Board Gaming. People from around the globe competed for the $25,000 grand prize. This year, The Haven, a board game store in Parker, hosted the first ever regional qualifiers for the World Series tournament. William Gregory is one of the owners of The Haven. He says the rising popularity of board games has been seen all over the country. Board games kind of had uh, a little bit of a um, surge in popularity. Because of that, people uh, opened up the uh, cabinets and dusted them off and uh, cleared the cobwebs and started playing some, some games and decided, you know, actually, we enjoy uh, this. And even post-pandemic, board games are bringing people together. Antonio De Conte was one of the competitors at the regional qualifiers. He says board games have helped his family get closer. They bring people together. They get you away from the screen and you're actually interacting with people. Um, and uh, my family loves to get together and play board games. We have two young kids uh, and um, my son is five and instead of going out and getting Candyland, which is kind of a brainless maneuver, you can actually find games where the kids can make decisions, yet they're still simple. DeConte says in Aberdeen, people who enjoy board games are working to expand their community to include more families and older people. Most people in the board game space um, generally are families, they're more casual, um, and so uh, trying to find them and and have more events would be would be nice. Meanwhile, in Sioux Falls, the board gaming community had been growing even before the pandemic increased interest. Amanda Wormers is the owner of Game Chest. It's a board game store in Sioux Falls that opened in 2017. She says they've been building a community that welcomes people of all ages and skill levels. There are games that are called gateway games that are typically like the intro game and uh, there's a lot of people in, in communities like mine that are excited to help um, foster that hobby within other people. Wormer says board games provide a safe place for people who feel isolated. Historically, the people who enjoy board games and card games are people who are outcasted or who are othered. 
And so regardless of their um, gender, race, creed, religion, they understand what it be, feels like to be othered. And so um, welcoming people who have also been othered for other reasons um, is a lot easier. After a successful first year, organizers of the regional board game tournament hope to expand the event. They want to move it to a bigger city and make it a convention with more events and people. With South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Madeline Grabo. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Have you scheduled your yearly Well Woman exam? Well, Dr. Erica Shipper from Sanford Health practices obstetrics and gynecology, and she joins me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls to visit about the importance of going in for that yearly visit, and we'll touch on a new treatment for uterine fibroids while we're at it. Dr. Shipper, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I'm a bit of a procrastinator when it comes to these annual visits. I know it's important, but just walk us through. It's not the most pleasant thing, typically, for, for women out there uh, making that yearly appointment, but what, what's, what's the risk factors? What's the rewards for us in making that appointment specifically, that one woman visit? That is a great question. And may I say you're not alone. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of women do put off that exam. And in fact, some of us doctors put off our own. Mm. Um, But there's a couple of important reasons to schedule that exam every year. And the first is to address your current health issues and your own concerns about your own quality of life and your health care. And the second is disease prevention and early detection. Those are the main reasons we want to see you, and we want to see you every year. Every year, because things can develop they in can. Not, not a very long amount of time. What are some of the things we're looking for when we come to this visit? Sure. Well, as a physician, I'm looking at you know screening for disease, particularly looking at your blood pressure, your cholesterol, looking at you know risk of heart disease, diabetes. Um, from a women's health perspective, we of course do cervical cancer screenings, and not every woman needs a pap smear every year, but you still should have a breast exam looking for um, breast disease, um, most often a pelvic exam as well, and then there's age-appropriate screening, so talking about sexual health, um, family planning, whether you're in need of contraception or whether you're considering a pregnancy in the next year or two, and then perimenopausal and hormonal concerns and osteoporosis screening are all part of that. Right. What's a good age range to start thinking about that first visit if you're the the main adult in the life of a young woman? I think most patients we would ask to come and see us around the time that their their period starts or if their period seems to be coming late. That's a good time to develop care with, you know, um, an OBGYN or if you're very comfortable with your primary care provider, that's great as well. Certainly if there become problems with, um, with menstrual health, then you might want to lean toward a gynecologist. But OBGYNs care for women really from mid to late adolescence all the way through menopause. Mm-hmm. And we are a statewide program. I'm talking to you here in our Sioux Falls studio, but we know not every community necessarily has that OBGYN right down 
the street. Um, give us, a, I, I guess, what advice might you have for those folks where it's not so easy to make that appointment, and maybe that's part of why you're procrastinating a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Well, start with your primary care provider. Family medicine and internal medicine physician and advanced practice providers are very well-versed in women's health issues, and that's a great place to begin. And then if your issues are maybe a little bit beyond their comfort zone, they can refer you to an OBGYN. And many facilities in South Dakota have some telemedicine options if that's appropriate for your care. But certainly not living in, say, Rapid City or Sioux Falls should should not mean that you get lesser care. Right. I want to spend a little time now talking about uterine fibroids. This is a, a maybe not out of line for me to say, a bit of a specialty for you. Yes. Um, talk to us, what, what, what is that to start out with, if you haven't heard of this before? Of course. So a uterine fibroid is actually a benign tumor of the wall of the uterus. So I know that the word tumor is scary, mm-hmm. um, but this is not typically a cancer. Cancer in these tumors are very, very rare. They occur in about anywhere from 0.3 to 3 per 100,000 woman years, which is a weird statistic, but the point is they're very uncommon. However, fibroids themselves are actually very common. About 70 to 80% of women will have fibroids. Wow. And would that show up during a typical pelvic exam in in maybe that yearly visit? It may. Um, The way we would find it on a pelvic exam is if that uterus is particularly enlarged or firm. But a lot of times women will present more with symptoms. And um, you know, it's, it, hel- it helps, I think, to understand what kind of symptoms you may have if you have fibroids. So most commonly, we would see abnormal bleeding, particularly heavy or prolonged periods, or bleeding when you wouldn't expect in between your period, um, very painful periods. Otherwise, pelvic pain and pressure or fullness in the pelvis can also present, um, or is a way that fibroids will also present. And then, um, Difficulty with getting pregnant or recurrent pregnancy loss or miscarriage is another symptom that can sometimes indicate the presence of fibroids. And how do we treat something like this? So there are numerous ways to treat. And the way I always like to think about it is, are you planning pregnancy in the future or have you completed your family? Because that definitely changes our approach. Mm. So to begin with, just to treat symptoms, we can always try hormonal treatments with birth control pills or progesterone. There's also hormones that suppress um, or there's medications that suppress hormones completely that can help fibroids to regress or shrink. Um, And For women who still want to retain their ability to have children, sometimes we can also surgically remove those fibroids. So we can do that laparoscopically, or if the fibroid is inside the uterus, we can actually go with a camera through the cervix into the uterus and remove it that way. And that way we can preserve her fertility. Hmm. In women who no longer want to have children, we have a few more options. And one is to actually go through the, the veins and block the blood supply to those fibroids, and that's called uterine artery embolization. Um, kind of a nice minimally invasive approach for some women, or we can actually do a hysterectomy and remove the uterus completely. A newer procedure that we have is called um, radiofrequency ablation, or Excessa is kind of the brand name that, that um, we use. And this involves a laparoscopy, so just a couple of small incisions in the belly, and we put a little probe directly into the fibroid and run some energy in that. And that takes that big, firm fibroid that feels like a softball or a baseball 
and makes it shrink down a little bit and gives it sort of the texture of a marshmallow is how we like to think of it. And so that can significantly reduce the pain and the pressure and the bleeding, but without a big surgery and, a, and an increased blood loss. Wow. So a whole host of options for what's sounding like a very common situation for women. Quite common, yes. Wow. I will say some women have fibroids. They don't have symptoms. They're, they're not bothered at all by them. And if that's the case, you don't necessarily have to do anything. You just need to know they're there and occasionally monitor them. Right. And one more reason, make that yearly well woman visit. That's right. My guest has been Dr. Erica Shipper, who practices obstetrics and gynecology at Sanford Health. Dr. Shipper, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining me today. It was nice to meet you as well. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Large events can often lead to an increased demand for sex or labor exploitation. Recognizing the key indicators of human trafficking is the first step in identifying victims, and it could also help save a life. Mary Beth Holsworth is the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigation's Human Trafficking Coordinator, and she joins us now by phone. Mary Beth, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start just with what is human trafficking? Because popular media, we have a popular film right now, Sound of Freedom, dealing with this subject matter right now, uh, paints this picture of, you know, being snatched by a stranger, maybe. Um, is that what human trafficking looks like most often? No, it, I mean, it certainly happens. But oftentimes what happens is there is a long period of grooming, uh, between the trafficker and the potential victim that occurs that really exploits the vulnerability of that victim. And the trafficker identifies that vulnerability and then just really kind of sells them this, this false hope and this, this promise of something so much better. So, you know, human trafficking is really that force fraud or coercion that happens, uh, but it's such a complex issue that that's why uh, conversations like this are so important. Right. And and there are so many nuances in, in how someone might get caught up in a situation like this and what that looks like. There might be sex trafficking or labor trafficking. And when you've got big events like, say, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, where you have a huge influx of people in small communities, you know, it's not necessarily all, not at all, all these people are perpetrators, but it increases a demand on a place where sometimes people in a desperate situation are looking to exploit that. Um, what are ways that we can be on the lookout for something suspicious? Well, first of all, I want to say that while we know that there are um, there is a an increase in demand, as you say, when we have more people arrive at a state for an event. Uh, the other thing I want to point out, though, is that uh, human trafficking occurs across the state, 365 days a year. Right. It's never going away. It's never not present. Um, you know, oftentimes what we see in South Dakota is like familial trafficking or uh, relationship type traffic trafficking. Uh, and that is so common that I want to make sure that listeners understand that it's not just rally. It is across the entire state all the time. So um, the things that we can look out for, you know, particularly during rally, if someone is out there, is, of course, looking for someone that looks like they may be engaged in what appears to be prostitution. Uh, we know that prostitution is a misdemeanor in the state. Um, however, oftentimes people who are being trafficked are forced to be prostitutes. 
So while we never want anyone to look at a situation and think, oh, I think this is what's going on, I'm going to intervene and try to find out more because we want people to stay safe, uh, we do want people to know that there are ways to report possible trafficking. Of course, if there is a, an immediate danger or something that is happening that requires a call to 911, definitely utilize that. That's what we have our law enforcement for. Um, but there also is the you know National Human Trafficking Hotline to be able to report uh, suspected human trafficking that may be occurring. So you want to look for situations that appear to be, like I said, prostitution. You want to look for someone that seems to be very withdrawn, uh, not able to really speak for himself or herself. Uh, there might be a person with them that it really seems to be controlling whatever is going on in that situation. Uh, those are kind of indicators they're going to be those first red flags that, you know, something might be going on. And it could just be something like domestic violence or whatever situation. But, of course, it's better to possibly make a report than ignore it and then wonder later what you could have stopped. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that, that this is a this is a year round situation and there there are different contexts for ways that people are exploited in different scenarios. Um, I want to touch on also we we talked about the sex trafficking piece if someone appears to be engaging in prostitution. Uh, what about the labor trafficking piece? How much of that do we see in South Dakota? Absolutely. So this is, uh, you know, this is a, like my position is brand new. It's mm -hmm. uh, been, I've been here for seven months. So this is something that is really starting to come, starting to come to the forefront of everyone's attention. Uh, but we know labor trafficking has been occurring in South Dakota for a long time. So the, the things that we usually see are uh, we're looking at, you know, dairies and other agriculture operations that do bring in people from other countries to work here. I mean, that's one of the, the blessings of being able to work in America. Uh, but what we also know is happening is it can be happening in construction, um, restaurants, of course, massage parlors, things like that, where people are being forced to work off a particular debt that may have been what was used to get them here. So they're being told, hey, we will get you this great job in South Dakota, uh, then you have to work for us and you can work off that debt. Well, what usually then ends up happening is that debt is never being worked off and that person is forced to live in conditions that are unhealthy, work in conditions that are unhealthy. And so we know that that is happening again all year round um, across the entire state. Hmm. And that to me sounds uh, even more difficult to perhaps distinguish if I'm if I'm a bystander because you know if someone's new to my community you know obviously that doesn't necessarily mean that they've been trafficked here um, are, are there exactly. are there ways that a, 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 an average person could be on the lookout for labor trafficking like with uh, the sex trafficking that we talked about right because just like vulnerabilities of the sex trafficking piece it's really hard for um people who are in that situation to identify as mm -hmm. being trafficked. The same thing goes for the labor trafficking, but then you also have those issues with uh, the language barriers and just trying to build trust and rapport when you can't even hardly communicate with them. So the things that, you know, we kind of look for with the labor trafficking are, you know, are, are there people who are having to work in conditions that are, you know, very, very difficult uh, without the appropriate clothing, without the appropriate cover? Um, are you seeing people who are uh, showing signs of injuries or sun exposure or exposure to cold uh, that looks like it's been untreated? Uh, people who just really aren't 
being able to take care of themselves the way that we know they should be able to. So again, we want to be able to look at those things and say, there might be something going on here. I should make a report just in case, because I'd rather make that report and and have it turn out to be nothing than the other way around. So just looking at, you know, what conditions, uh, what does it look like that person is living in or working in that could be an indicator that they're just really not able to t- take care of themselves the way that they should be. Let's say I see something that that raises my eyebrows that matches some of these descriptions that you've given us. Um, what information should I be ready to share if I do make a report? That's a great question. So, you know, law enforcement, uh, from from our standpoint, we always need to know as many details as possible. Uh, when you call dispatch, of course, be calm and try to have like, what vehicle were they driving? What did they look like? What did uh, what did the potential boss person look like? Um, get as many of those very minute details as possible, and that can always help us then follow that lead. When you call the human trafficking hotline, uh, it's very similar. They want to know as many details as possible um, so they can then report back to that law enforcement. So, for example, the human trafficking hotline reports back to uh, our office, DCI, but also to federal partners. So, it's going back to law enforcement and NGOs. So we need as many details as possible with you staying calm and, and possibly we'll be able to follow up with you later if that's, if that's something you're interested in. Right. Now, of course, we don't want to approach people because that's not necessarily safe. But I'm thinking in this age of cell phones, and some of us have a pretty good Zoom on our cell phones, is that, is that kind of towing the line because, between what's safe and what's not if we try to grab a picture of someone that we think might be uh, in a dangerous situation? Oh, I don't know that I feel comfortable right. telling someone to do that because of the safety issue. Um, so I will, you know, I'm going to leave that to a person and an individual's discretion, uh, but I'm not going to tell them to try to or not to because ultimately I want people to stay safe. It is, you know, you have to protect yourself first. Right. Definitely make a call if you need to, uh, but do not put yourself in a in a harmful situation. Right. Be safe, but note that information so you can share it with law enforcement. Um, Absolutely. Mary Beth, like you said, this is a brand new position for the state of South Dakota and for folks where this conversation is their way of meeting you for the first time. I wonder if you would share a bit with us about how you came into this position and your work thus far. Absolutely. So uh, my background is in child sexual assault prevention and response. I've been doing that for about 14 years. I did it purely on a volunteer basis um, following a situation that happened with my own children. And that led me to meet incredible people and be a part of incredible work across the state to change uh, the prevention and the response measures for child maltreatment. Um, I did that for a very long time and still continue that today under my position here, which is excellent because, again, it addresses vulnerabilities. Uh, Then I spent about four years at the South Dakota Women's Prison as a reentry coach and also backup correction officer. And that really helped me understand the correlation between childhood trauma, the pathway to incarceration, um, and then also trauma as an adult and how that can ultimately lead to uh, emotional physical, behavioral issues into adulthood, uh, you know, adverse childhood experiences. 
but then also um, how that can lead to vulnerabilities that could expose a person to trafficking. So then this position opened up and I applied and I was uh, blessed and honored to be accepted for it. So now I get to take 14 years of experience and just work that I'm incredibly passionate about and be able to partner with other incredible people across the state to see what we can do to, you know, be ahead of this issue and, and try to make South Dakota even safer for our residents. Thank you for sharing that story. I think that's important for folks to understand the people doing this work as well as uh, what they can do. Um, I want to circle back to something you said towards the beginning of our conversation about familial trafficking being a big piece of the puzzle in South Dakota. I'm imagining being a relative and uh, seeing something my cousin or something that someone is doing within my own family. And there's a whole different layer to making a report in that situation versus a stranger on the street. I'm curious if you um, have any examples or any advice for folks in that situation of how, uh, how private is a report? What's the process after the fact if they're worried about pushback from their own family members? Right. So that is another excellent question. Um, I am very, uh, I will say, sympathetic and empathetic to how difficult that is, Mm -hmm. especially given the situation with my own children uh, and the people that were involved as it was a relative. Uh, I understand how hard it is. um, But looking back, I have absolutely, from a personal standpoint, I have absolutely no regrets about making the report that I did and standing up for my children. I have had so many conversations with um, survivors of different trauma that did not have that support. And so I just really encourage people, you know, to kind of put yourself in that, that person's position and say, if that was me, would I want someone to do something? And honestly, making a stand when you know it is the right thing to do, as hard as it is, and even when we feel like we're oftentimes alone in that, uh, you are literally going to possibly change the world for that person. So, um, of course, when you call law enforcement, you can do it anonymously, and you can say, look, I just need to report something. Um, You can be adamant and say, I just, I do not want to give my name or anything else, but you need to know that this is happening. Um, So, it it absolutely can be done anonymously. If you feel like it needs to be done, it's still better to do that than nothing at all. Um, But if you, I just really encourage people to be that courageous voice for a loved one and and try to be a part of that report process. I know it's hard. I know that it's scary. I definitely even encourage people to reach out to me if they need to talk to someone through that uh, whole process. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's going to be the best thing that you can possibly do, and you have no idea what it can do to change the life of that individual. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the best way if someone doesn't know the national or the local trafficking line? Is this a 911 call, a non-emergency call? What are ways for people to make that report? Right. So, again, if it's an emergent situation, um, always call 911. If it's, if it's an extreme situation, we need to have someone to intervene immediately. Um, if you you're just sitting there, your brain's racing, you have no idea what the number is, you can Google the non-emergent number and they will, you know, try to connect it to the right the right person. But for listeners right now, um, the human trafficking hotline ran by Polaris. And again, that tip comes back to myself, some NGOs and our federal partners. That phone number is 888-373-7888. 
Uh, there's a TTY number, which is 711, and there's also a text number, which is 233733. And, you know, you can just make that call and it comes right back to our state and we're able to address it and go from there. But like, I, you know, like you had brought up earlier in the conversation, have as many details as possible. And, you know, those tips can be anonymous if they need to be. My guest has been Mary Beth Holsworth, the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigations Human Trafficking Coordinator. We'll have all of these uh, tips and great information available online as well. Mary Beth, thank you for your time and your work. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Now let's take a moment for preservation and posterity. Otto Bachman grew up on the family farm near Avon, married, traveled during his career, and spent 20 years in Phoenix. When he returned to South Dakota, he and his wife moved to the Hill City area. They planned to stay a year or so. That was 23 years ago. Now a volunteer at the South Dakota Civilian Conservation Corps Museum just north of Hill City, Bachman talked with SDPB's Larry Rohr about enjoying the Black Hills and volunteering to share it with others. How many people ask if they can come out and stay if you got an extra bedroom? Well, actually, interesting you ask that question because they like to come out to the Black Hills because then we can go to Hill City, we can ride the 1880 train, we can hike Harney Peak, which is now Black Elk. Although it's interesting, as I've gotten older, Harney Peak has gotten taller. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a beautiful place and so many things to do. You've got the and some people dislike the uh, motorcycle rally, but it's what a what a boom to the local economy and, and the activities and very interesting people from really all over the world. So we're at the CCC Museum and you're volunteering. You must enjoy it. Oh, I do very much. I, I always grew up hearing CCC and WPA, and, and although I was very young when my father passed away, I can still remember him pointing to us kids and telling us we don't know how lucky we have it. And everywhere you go, you, you see CCC and WPA remnants all over the country, literally. And when I retired, I was fortunate enough to volunteer at Mount Rushmore, took a class through Department of Interior. My boss, quote unquote, uh, Zane Martin was a, a museum specialist and we were coming back from Jewel Cave doing a project and she said we should stop at that little CCC museum in Hill City. Didn't even know there was a CCC museum. But she always said that there was a connection between uh, Guts and Borglum's uh, baseball team and the CCC. Well, we never found that connection, but we did find a lot of CCC boys that were at CCC camps and they'd take small groups from different camps and take them to Mount Rushmore to move rocks and to uh, carry bits and do some of the dirty work, if you will. So there was that connection and I just got to know, there were some local CCC boys that are all gone now that I got mm -hmm. to know and, and I got to know uh, Peggy Sanders, who is a, a, a local area author of CCC and historian and we got to chatting and one thing led to another and here I am. That was Otto Bachman talking with SDPB's Larry Rohr. The new season of Dakota Life begins in September with a visit to Hill City, including a stop at the South Dakota Civilian Conservation Corps Museum. Kevin Wooster talks fishing and famous last words after this break. You're in the moment on listener-supported SDPB Radio. 
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Oh, the folly of tempting fate. I know it well, and so does Kevin Wooster. He's here to share some famous last words from the Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Kevin Wooster, welcome back to In the Moment. Glad to be chatting with you today. Hey, Jackie. Yeah, there are just sometimes when I should keep my mouth shut, don't you think? <laughs> I, I can I can say that for myself for sure, but why don't you tell us your story? <laughs> well, if you're if you're going to a place and say you're at the Thunderstick Lodge near Chamberlain for an annual family reunion, you got three dozen or so, thirty or five or forty woosters there, and you want to take a couple of your grandkids fishing at your old fishing hole, the Reliance Dam, early in the morning, and uh, as you're gearing up. Uh, uh, one of them, eight-year-old grandson, Bodie's uh, asked, as I've got the rig set for him to fish, where's the leader? And I explained to him that we're not going to need a leader there. I haven't caught a northern pike there in, well, as I say in my blog, over 50 years. Now, maybe I'm just unlucky or lucky, depending on what you think about <laughs> northern pike and their teeth. But uh, but so I kind of dismissed that casually, and he looked at me as if, as if okay, I know you're my grandpa and you're supposed to know a lot about fishing, but this doesn't right off make sense to me. Turns out it didn't. <laughs> so uh, don't make fun of me too much, uh, Kevin, or listeners. I myself do not know much about fishing. What's a leader? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that question. I think I can answer it. Um, <laughs> it the, you know, a lot of times you can just tie on uh, a lot, the end of your fishing line to a hook, which I do for simplicity's sake and put different to tails on it, or you might have a lead uh, weight on the hook, above the hook, that uh, you, then you can put a plastic uh, lure-type thing on it that entices fish to hit it and bite it. And I love to fish that way. I like to fish without, either with a little artificial minnow or with some kind of uh, bait that uh, is uncomplicated. Well, if you're going to fish for a certain fish, northern pike in particular, which are toothy and notorious for slicing through line, uh, when they get a bait in their mouth and best getting away, you might fish with a steel leader. I hate steel leaders. I, d I don't like to mess with them. They, I don't like the way they affect the line. And it's just one more thing to mess around with. And occasionally I get bit off in certain waters by a northern pike, meaning, you know, they bit it off and you lose the fish. And the fish usually is fine because that doesn't last long with them. The, often the, the, the lure itself or the hook itself would dislodge and and over a period of time, it just kind of comes out. And uh, sometimes that's the best thing for the fish because you don't have to handle it, especially on northern pike, which is hard to handle because mm -hmm. it's slippery and slimy and it's got a lot of teeth. Ooh. And uh, and so this, these leaders protect uh, that line from what could happen and, of course, well, what <laughs> did happen. <laughs> well, I think you could be forgiven for saying we don't need no stinking leaders because yeah. it had been quite some time since you'd happened upon one in that particular place. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's been six months since I caught a northern pike there. It had been almost 60 years since I caught a northern <laughs> pike there. And uh, so I'm figuring the odds are pretty good I'm not going to catch them. <laughs> They're not going to catch one that day. And to, to, you know, as I look back on it, okay, when I go there, I usually don't fish with live bait. And I usually don't fish for very long. And so we sat there over a period of, you know, a couple of hours and uh, fished. Uh, I don't like live bait 
fishing either. I don't like to mess with worms and minnows and stuff. That's another story, another grandkid story. And I've, I've learned to fish with live bait for grandkids because they, <laughs> they're more effective often than other lures, non-live bait lures. Uh, so you're sitting there, and, and, uh, and they're doing what I thought they would do. We're catching a lot of little bluegills, and they're having a blast, uh, and uh, one crappie, and, you know, nice little fish, easy to deal with, easy to unhook in most situations and put right back, and, and you can just have a lot of fun with them. And the kids were having a blast when, as I say in the blog, old Toothy showed up and wrecked the bluegill party. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, away we went. Now, that's going to be one of the f- more entertaining um, fights that Bodie has had because it was, uh, well, it, and then the, with the rod suffering because of it, <laughs> as in breaking midway through the fight. The great rod graveyard <laughs> for those great fish fights. So we've got, as you know, the, we've got another kid on there, my other grandson, Philip, who's he's got his line in the water. So this fish is pulling Bodie all over the fishing dock, and I'm trying to get Philip and his line under Bodie's rod so we can pass by him under Philip's rod, and, and so they don't get all tangled up. And and the, the fish is running in all directions, and midway through it, Bodie says, my rod broke. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, his rod didn't break. And I look down, sure enough, the rod is cracked right at the handle and is tr- starting to crack all the way through so now i'm trying to hold the rod together while he's fighting this fish and uh well it came to, came to an ultimate conclusion <laughs> as Bodie kind of thought it might and i never in the world thought it would well what do you he, know i should get bit off i should mention that uh readers can can get the full story for themselves uh this is part of kevin's blog on the other hand uh at sdpb.org slash Wooster, but I want to touch on the the idea. So this is this is this is a bit of a laugh. Grandson Bodie proven right somehow, uh, despite <laughs> despite <laughs> the decades that would uh, lean to the contrary. But uh, this this moment at Reliance Dam is is one of many in a in a history for you. When we think about fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers and grandsons, this is this is an important moment. It is. It's a place I, I took my these two grandsons for the first time, uh, and it's a place my dad took me, and it's really the place where I got into the world of fishing beyond our stock dam with bullheads in it because Reliance Dam was bigger. It's 46 acres. It's it's uh, got it's always got bluegills and bass and northern pike, which I caught my first northern pike ever in my life at Reliance Dam more than half a century ago. But it was a spot where we'd spend more time, and when my dad had time, or when he would make time, because, you know, he was a busy farmer, but he made time for me and for that time together on the water. And, you know, that is, my dad died when I was 16, so I didn't get a lot of time with him that you would have thought you would have had. So those times were especially, and are especially important to me. So it was important for me to take my son, Casey, and, and the grandsons, Bodie and Philip to that place, uh, not just to fish, but to talk about their great-grandpa and grandpa and what the place means to me. Yeah. It's not always about the fish, although Bodhi will certainly remember, I'm sure, <laughs> this particular fish, but well, it, it's about well, the things yeah. we say. <laughs> it, it is. It is. And, and, I, and we had some great conversations, and they had fun, and, you know, that's really, uh, you know, what they say. That's hackneyed, but true. That's why they call it fishing, not catching. <laughs> That just goes how hard I laughed, how how much I'm not in that community because that was news to me, and so I got well, to enjoy good. it. <laughs> good, I appreciate it. 
Uh, Kevin, always a pleasure uh, to chat with you, and I am delighted for Bodhi that uh, that you never forget that first time you say to an adult, "What about this?" and they say, "No," yeah. and you're proven right. right. So that's also a small right. victory for Bodhi as well. <laughs> Last thing he had when I when we explained that maybe it was better off for all that the bike got away was okay, but. We should have had a leader. <laughs> well, Kevin, uh, my my uh, impromptu Fisher's blessing for you is may you only have a leader when you need it. There, I'll, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> you can All find right. Kevin's blog, on the other hand, at sgpb.org slash Wooster. Kevin, always a treat. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jackie. For 43 years, the Sioux River Folk Festival has filled the late summer air with music. Joining me today in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls is Connor Peterson and John Berkness. Connor is co-president of South Dakota Friends of Traditional Music, and John is treasurer. Connor and John, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Um, I wonder, uh, uh, and Connor, maybe we can start with you, just an overview of maybe the history of the Sioux River Folk Festival and and, and how uh, you guys got involved. Yeah, so as you said, it's been going on now for over 40 years. Uh, it started just in Canton, South Dakota, um, by a couple couple people, and uh, in they did it around the, the Canton City Park area for a couple of years, and then since then it's moved to the um, it's since then moved into the the Newton Hill State Park area, and and we've been doing it ever since. And it's such a magical place to put on that kind of festival. And so, yeah, yeah, Johnny, tell tell me a bit from your side. Well, I've been going to the Sioux River Folk Festival now for about twenty five years. Um, it is, you know, and over the years, it's been a place that's you know ultimately. It's a family festival as well as just like deep and historical as far as the music that you see and the magic that that gets experienced over the evenings. Yeah. What, what are some of the things that set this festival apart from some of the other uh, festivals on, on this side of the river that people are familiar with? I think it's cool because it's um, really family oriented and it's smaller. It's not like a huge music festival where you have thousands and thousands of people. Um, and it's also cool since it's on a state park, um, we don't sell any liquor there. So it's a kind of BYOB. Um, and so, yeah, and it might get a little interesting this year with, the we're looking at some weather that might be, um, impacting it. But if people check out our, our Facebook at Sioux River Folk Festival, we'll, we'll be updating everything on there. And, um, if you check out our website too, the Sioux River, Sioux River we, uh, post stuff on there. So yeah, okay. we're working on a, a pretty strong contingency plan for dealing with the weather. Yep. That's a, that's always a piece of the puzzle when you yeah. put on an outdoor event in South Dakota. Um, tell us a little bit about the folks we've got lined up this year for the festival. Yeah. So, um, on the, our Friday night headliner are the Stillhouse junkies and they're from, uh, Durango, Colorado area. Um, they're a, a trio that plays kind of bluegrass type music. Um, and they actually played just across the street from these studios here in Sioux Falls at the Levitt this summer. Um, 
And man, they're awesome. They're so much fun. A triumphant return. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. And then so, and there's a couple other bands um, that evening on Friday evening. Pleasure Horse um, is just before Stillhouse Junkies. Before that is the Crabgrass Crew. They're a local Sioux Falls group that's been around for years. Um, and then Saturday, we've got Songs from the Road Band. They're um, an incredible band that uh, they just played this last weekend at the Montrose Music Festival. Yeah, I got a little taste of that. That was, uh, I can just see the night, you know, the lights and the stars at night at Newton Hill State Park and hear their music. And I could just imagine the magic that's going to happen. Johnny, you just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> and additionally, we got Laney Lou and the Bird Dogs. Um, and they're from Montana. They've played in Sioux Falls a couple times. Even just this year, they've played at Monk's Bar um, just downtown here. Mm-hmm. Incredible group. Um, Johnny's band, Johnny B and the Blind Owl Band, are playing just before that. Um, yes. And then we have a campground contest winner that's playing before them. And I should mention here that we do have a campground contest. If you if you feel like you got some stuff to show and you want to play the Sioux River Folk Fest, um, Saturday at 5 o'clock, there's a... Um, campground contest that we hold and so if you want to get on there um, make sure you you talk to somebody uh, around the stage area otherwise you can email um, Sharon but I don't have her email address right now so that's not very helpful we'll <laughs> find a way we'll, we'll, we'll make find it a happen way. yeah just come um, out to the park and People... then Hubble Town and um, I, I just want to finish here yeah. Hubble Town is playing before that um, they're from um, Rapid City area um, they're amazing and then Daniel and the Deliverance they're from Omaha and then Frozen Dead Guy Band, they're from Sioux Falls here, and they're a Grateful Dead cover band. Really, really fun. And then uh, Don McKenna, Eclectic Americana, is playing before that. So kind of awesome. a lot of acts, different different um, aspects of folk music, rock music, bluegrass music. Um, and I think it's interesting because we like to have all those blended in there. Yeah, kind of, kind of regional. You've got your local folks. You've got the folks from far off. Um, what are some of the um, things you're looking at when you're looking at booking this festival? What are you looking for um, outside of... The Treasurer's Band. Is it? Are you looking for? Uh, they they give me that sense of the stars at night and that peace when I listen to their music. What are some of the things Man, that you look for? I think first of all, like I said before, just having a good variance of different types of music. Um, we've booked acts that do straight up just like rock, like we'll have full on drums, electric guitars, and everything, um, all the way to playing just like really traditional square dances. Um, singer songwriter stuff i think it's just important to blend all those kind of things because if you just focus on only having just like one type of music yeah it's cool um but to have to have a little variance i think is is cool because it's it's everyone else is going to be interested in that get to expose people to different types of music that maybe they wouldn't listen to before yeah and traditional music you know it's not just music that's old either you know it's a music it's music that builds a tradition and the way Mm -hmm. In America, we pass down so many stories and ideas just through music in its own. So, you know, depending on the type of music, you could tell a million stories. That's a that's a great perspective. Um, and, and this idea of building tradition. Traditional isn't just old. You're building something. Um, how has the festival built over the years? And what are some other pieces that you might want to highlight? Yeah. So, I mean... A long time ago, the the founders um, and former presidents, Gaynor Johnson and Bill Peterson, you know, they ran a beautiful festival. And, you know, over time, it's it's had to evolve, you know, due to people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
it sometimes it would be you know you know the same bands playing over you know multiple times throughout the weekend and we've kind of stretched that out a little bit and um but also you see and like i've seen this you see the same people every year it becomes a big family out there so i've seen you know kids that are little kids now that are adults and playing music their, themselves and are amazing and you know the people who come out and you know they'll listen to someone playing around a campfire at night and that inspires them to do something different or you know just the generational growth that has happened because there are people who have been going to the festival for years and now their grandkids are going to mm-hmm. the same festival and they've all grown up they're running around like like they're free there's no they can't really go anywhere it's, you gotta, <laughs> you're in the park that's a great thing. Um, we're we're uh, a minute-ish left in our chat. Uh, give us the logistics. If I want to go, what do yeah. I need to know? What time, cost, all that good stuff? Yeah, so um, if you want to go, the music starts on Friday at 6. Um, and we have passes available at SeawRiverFolkFest.com. Otherwise, you can get tickets at the gate as well, and we do accept cards at the gate. Um, yeah, they're 40 bucks for a weekend pass, and then we also have daily passes available as well. Kids under 14 are free, so make sure you bring your kids. Um, dogs are allowed at the park as well. Uh, BYOB, make sure you have your dog on a leash, by the way. Um, let's see, what am I missing, Johnny? Anything? No, I think you pretty much got it. Nailed it. (laughs) The Sioux River Folk Festival is August 4th through 6th at Newton Hills State Park. We'll post a link on sdpb.org with some more of that information as well. Connor and Johnny, thank you for visiting with us today. We appreciate it. Much obliged. Thanks. See you all at the fest. That's our show for the day. We hope that it served you. Uh, My name is Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.